0: The verses that we read this morning from 1 Timothy 4, 9 through 11, come in this section, um, actually from verses 6 to 11, where we could call it an interlude. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with uh, classical music. Um, At home, we're starting to uh, teach our son how to listen to uh, (laughs) different types of music, including classical music, Mozart, and Beethoven. Uh, When you listen to classical music, one of the things you'll notice is oftentimes a piece will begin with the melody, the the main uh, melody of that piece. And then the composer will spend some time to take that melody and create various uh, riffs or variations off of it. Maybe a different key, maybe he adds some different notes, maybe it's, you know, uh, different rhythms. Uh, And he'll do that for a while, but after that there will be an interlude in the piece where the composer will go back and re-emphasize the main melody Um, sort of like a reiteration of reminding us of what the main message or what the main uh, thrust of that piece of music was this is what we have in first timothy chapter 4 verses 6 to 11 we have An interlude where from the beginning of the book to chapter 4 Paul has uh, reminded Timothy of the two most important things in his ministry which is to be faithful to the Word of God and to grow in godliness and Paul has um, expounded on that for three chapters three and a half chapters here in chapter four verses six to eleven paul goes back and reminds timothy again of the main point he says in verse six if you instruct the brethren in these things meaning in these these two focuses of being faithful to god's word and to to pursue godliness if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. We spoke about uh, verse 6 through 8 the last time. Today, in our verses 9 through 11, Paul still in this interlude because he says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, etc., etc. Well, what is the faithful saying and worthy? that's worthy of all acceptance? It's basically his main message. In the book of first timothy so that's what we're going to talk about today uh, is paul reminding us reminding timothy and reminding us of what a faithful ministry looks like what is a faithful ministry we'll talk about today's text in three main points first paul reminds us of the attitude we ought to have towards this ministry, the attitude that we ought to have towards this ministry. Then he reminds us what this ministry actually looks like, which might surprise some of us. And then he uh, encourages us, reminds us, but also encourages us of why we ought to continue in this ministry, why we ought to continue to be faithful. What reason do we have? So attitude what is our attitude, what our attitude should be, um, what this ministry looks like, and then finally, uh, what's the reason we have to continue faithfully in this ministry. So first, let's look at what attitude should we have towards this ministry, towards Christ's ministry. Uh, If you look at verse 9, 1 Timothy 4, verse 9, There, the Bible says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Like we said at the beginning, uh, what is the faithful saying that is worthy of all acceptance? Well, it's these two main focuses of 1 Timothy. um, That Timothy not teach any other doctrine and that he instruct others to not teach any other doctrine besides the doctrine that was given to him the biblical doctrine and that he grow in godliness that he grow in love and faithfulness Um, we can summarize uh, what the faithful saying that's worthy of all acceptance is we can summarize that if we look in the previous verse in verse seven but reject profane and old wives fables And exercise yourself towards godliness. So, there you have the two focuses. The key word of verse 9 is actually that word acceptance. The word acceptance means a warm welcome. Uh, Actually, it's the word that's used when a guest comes to your house, perhaps a guest like today, and they're coming in from the cold. A guest comes to your house, and you welcome them warmly to your house. Maybe you make some coffee, bring them some hot tea. You know, you turn up the heat if they're cold. You, uh, if their, you know, shoes are wet, or if it's raining outside, maybe you give them a, 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 a towel. You make them feel welcome. Uh, that's that. That's what that word means. We are to have this warm welcome or warm acceptance. Of God's word. Uh, what this word does not mean. This word does not mean. A begrudging tolerance. Okay. So, so acceptance doesn't mean just. Well, I'll tolerate it. Until you know it's intolerable. And it definitely doesn't mean. Ignore it. It means to, to treat. A friend who enters your house. Uh, to treat God's word. As you would treat a friend coming over to your house. That doesn't seem like such a hard thing to do or such a hard teaching on the surface, right? Because I think if you ask any Christian, uh, do you want to warmly accept the word of God? I think most of them will say, yeah, sure, I want to warmly accept the word of God. But let's be specific. What is the word of God in the this specific context in first Timothy that Paul is instructing Timothy and the church to warmly accept. Well, it's got the two main focuses of first Timothy to, uh, to be faithful to the word of God and to grow in godliness. Okay. That still doesn't sound very objectionable, but then you get into the nitty gritties of, of what Paul has talked about so far in this book in 1st Timothy the things that we are to warmly accept things including controversial things controversial in today's church sadly controversial things such as that women ought to be silent during worship service that a woman must not teach that's 1st Timothy 2 controversial things Supposedly controversial things such as the qualifications for deacons and elders For example that deacons and elders and deacons must be the husband of one wife Which implies that they must be men Uh, Such controversial things as uh, What Paul says in chapter 4 to not give heed to deceiving spirits meaning to not give heed to, to to worship styles or worship philosophies that emphasize spiritual highs over against the, the, the word of God or contrary to the word of God. I mean, we see that all over the place, pervasively in church today. Churches that give heed to deceiving spirits. And in First Timothy, Paul warns Timothy against giving heed to the doctrine of demons. And we talked about that. What is a doctrine of a demon? It's a it's the doctrine that basically says, Well, did God really say this? About a supposedly minor doctrine. Or uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, a statement that says, Well, this part of scripture isn't really as important as other parts of scripture. It's not essential to the faith. And so you start to create doubt. You start to create a wedge between God's word and us through that way, through this minor way. That's actually what Satan did to Eve. And we see churches all over the place today giving heed to similar things, similar doctrines of demons. I don't think we're in a place today where the church even tolerates these teachings right Um, I think at best you might find I'm not talking about our church I'm not talking about Vanguard but uh, the truth is the main reason why Vanguard was started was because the churches that the denomination were the denominations that many churches, Vanguard churches, used to belong to, uh, they were at best begrudgingly tolerating some of these very teachings that are listed in First Timothy. And that might even be generous. They might have not even tolerated these teachings. And yet we're not even told to just tolerate it. We're told to warmly Accept it. Welcome it. What is our attitude? Do we warmly accept God's teaching, including these teachings? So that's the attitude that we ought to have in ministry, is we ought to accept all the things, warmly accept all the things warmly welcome all the things that god has to say to us and all of it that's what a faithful ministry is now what does a faithful ministry look like everybody would look at uh, verse 10 the beginning part of verse 10 where paul says for to this end meaning to the end of warmly accepting and welcoming The whole counsel of god everything that god has to say for to this end meaning to this destination or this goal uh that word end is literally uh the word for the place that you're going to so like this morning on my google maps i typed in the address of this place that's the end and google maps took me to the end for to this end this destination goal We both labor and suffer reproach. That's what a faithful ministry looks like. It's labor and suffering reproach. Uh, The word for labor actually means to toil. There's a Greek word that's used for work in general. A generic word for work. Okay, Any type of work. When you're working on something, there's a word for that. Uh that's not the word that's used here. This word that's used in this verse is the specific word for toiling, uh for growing tired, growing weary when you work. Uh actually, the the, the Chinese translation of this word, so the not the Greek translation, but the if you were to translate this into Chinese, uh The uh, the Chinese word for this literally says, when your heart grows bitter when you work. Okay, that's that word, to labor. Uh, It's actually this word, the same word that's used when Jesus kind of takes this word and flips it around. And Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's that same word. For toiling, anyone who has gone weary from their labor. So not just work, but toiling, to go weary. Probably the, the most toilsome labor I've ever had in my life was when I was in college and I was part of this nonprofit organization and, uh, and we were trying to turn an abandoned lot in Philadelphia into a community garden. Now, if you've driven through abandoned lots in Philadelphia, you know what they're like. It's not just dirt. It's not just something, you know, that's barren and, and it's just, you know, good soil and just plant a few things. No, it's, it's roughshod. There's roots, there's weeds, overgrown weeds with really deep root and, and you toil. You toil and toil and toil to pull up all these things. And then at the end of it, you find out there's even deeper roots. <laughs> And glass and, and, uh, and trash all over the place, uh, we tried to turn that abandoned lot into a community garden. I, I think we, um, we halfway succeeded. When I drove by it recently, I think the city paved it over, and it's now a parking lot. okay But that was the the, the most toilsome work i've ever had well that's that work that's that word here when we toil and labor in ministry when it's hard, when you don't seem like you're making any progress, when it, it yes, it does. It makes your heart bitter when you're work and tired and, you know, anxious and sad. When we toil like that in ministry, do we consider that type of ministry successful? Do we consider that type of ministry faithful or do we consider that type of ministry a failed or failing ministry? Consider how Paul ministered. Okay, this is from Acts 20. This is Acts 20 when he is leaving um, to go to Jerusalem and he meets with the Ephesian elders for the last time. So this is part of what he tells the Ephesian elders. Acts 20 verses 34 to 35. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this, that's that same word, that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul here describes how his own ministry was like with the Ephesians, how his labor was like he worked with his own hands, meaning he had a full-time job apart from his ministry at church. So he had two jobs. He wasn't paid by the Ephesians. He had his own full-time job where he not only supported himself, but he also had enough to support the weak in the Ephesian church. That's toil. That's labor. I don't think the Ephesian church gave Paul a five to six figure salary. I don't think they provided him a pension. I don't think there was even health insurance. I don't think they gave him vacation days. I don't think they gave him anything. Um, Now, it does say in the Bible that they were obligated. They should. But Paul didn't take any of these things he labored and then in his free time he ministered to the Ephesians with with tears he says in in that same passage for three years I think it was three years when we toil like this in ministry is this ministry considered successful Or is this ministry considered a failure? What does ministry look like? It looks like to suffer reproach. That word means to be disgraced, mocked, insulted. Sometimes rightfully so and justifiably so. For example, in Matthew 11, verse 20, when Jesus was with his disciples and passing through these major towns that were rejecting him, Jesus denounced them, and he reproached Chorazin and uh, Bethsaida. Uh, That's the word that he used. He reproached them. He disgraced them. He mocked them. He insulted them because they uh, deserved it. But other times, this word, to suffer reproach, is used when we suffer reproach unjustly. When we are in a ministry where we are disgraced, mocked, and reproached, do we consider it to be a successful, a faithful, or a failed ministry? When we are rejected by men, when people don't want to hear us, when the things we are preaching, the things we are teaching, the things we are sharing are considered abominable, harsh and wrong by those around us do we have a successful ministry or do we have a failure I want us to consider this two to three to four year stretch of Paul's ministry okay we all know Paul is maybe the greatest apostle, second greatest, apostle, you know, like he, he wrote a lot, right? And we all aspire to be Paul, right? I don't think anybody would, um, I don't think anybody would find controversy in the statement. Well, Paul gives us an example for us to follow. Okay, so Paul's not an outlier. He's, he's like the standard for ministry. Okay, consider this stretch, this two to three year stretch of Paul's ministry. This is in his second missionary journey. Uh, which is recorded in Acts 16 and 17. So his second missionary journey, Acts 16, Paul tries to go into these two Roman provinces in Central Asia, Phrygia Phy- and Galatia. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit forbade him to go into these regions. Uh, if you know something about the the um, the personality of Paul, Paul is never one to shy away from a place. If there's a place he wants to go there, he's going to kick down the door and do whatever he can to get there. Okay? So when the Bible says that the Holy Spirit forbade him to go into Phrygia and in Galatia, I think most likely what happened was Paul really, really wanted to go to Phrygia and Galatia, but he was stopped and the doors didn't open. It wasn't like he, he, he woke up one night and had this thought, oh, yeah, I don't think I want to go there. Okay? I think given what we know about Paul's personality, it probably was more like he really, really tried to go, but just somehow the circumstances didn't allow him to go. And so in Acts 16, uh, the writer of Acts, Luke, uh, records it as the Holy Spirit forbade him to go, so he doesn't go. Then he tries to go to Northern Asia Minor, so he's not allowed to go to Central Asia Minor. So he tries to go to Northern Asia Minor, Bithynia, and the Holy Spirit stops him there. So then he decides to go to Macedonia, right? And so he goes to this city called Philippi, where he is dragged, beaten. And whipped and imprisoned in Philippi. Okay? So he goes to the next city. A place called Thessalonica. Where he causes a riot. And they throw him out. And then finally he's able to go to Berea. Has a little bit of good time. Not a good time, but has a peaceful ministry there. Before he goes to Athens, this important city. Where... He's mocked again. So consider this. In this two-year period of Paul's ministry, and and, and by most biblical scholars, um, you know, this happened after the Jerusalem Council, which was around 49 AD. um, Eventually, he goes to Corinth, which by most biblical scholars was 51, 52 AD, okay? So in this period of time between 49 AD and 52 AD, this two to three year period, what did Paul's ministry look like? Well, he was rejected by three Roman provinces, couldn't go there. He was violently driven out of two cities. He goes to Athens, this important Greek city, probably the most important Greek city of the world at that time. He's not able to establish any church there. There's no evidence of a church in Athens. And the best that he is able to do in this two to three period is only two house churches. A house church in Philippi says very clearly in Acts that they met in the household of Lydia and a house church in Thessalonica in the house of Jason because it says in Acts that Jason harbored him. There's no mega church. There's no Let's say this: There's no revival movement. There's no, you know, gathering of hundreds of gatherers, uh, uh, followers. Uh, there's not even a regular church of like forty to fifty people. Like in in this two to three year period, he, the best that he does is two house churches. Like we're a house church, and being rejected everywhere else, violently driven out of two cities. Would we consider this a faithful ministry? Did he succeed? Or was he a failure? Imagine you're a seminary student taking a seminary class which is trying to prepare you for pastoral ministry. And somebody a presenter comes in and says, "This is what this is what you're preparing for. You're going to, have to toil. You're going to have to labor. There's no salary. There's no insurance. There's no pension. There's no vacation time. Uh, You're going to have to work. Find other work so that you can work at church. Um, You're going to be reproached. Not going to have a big church. Might not even have a 40 to 50 person church. You might might spend your time in just a house because everyone's going to hate you they're going to hate the message that you teach because it will be offensive to them they'll think you're harsh even people in church will think you're harsh when they listen to the sermon audio and nobody's going to want to come would you like to be part of that ministry And what will your answer be but see friends this is this is paul's ministry Right? He says, For to this end we labor, we toil, and we suffer reproach. Now you're asking yourself, well, why? <laughs> What's what you know what reason? You know, it's interesting when um when, when when Paul on Damascus Road, when when he is converted by Jesus, Jesus actually tells him, Why Paul, why do you kick against the goads? It's so hard for you. Right? Because he's butting himself up against Jesus. You could say from a different perspective, maybe from a human perspective, that once he follows Jesus and goes into this ministry, and it's hard, it's toil. There's sometimes no result. And he's suffering reproach. You could say that from a human perspective, he's hitting against the goads, right? Why do you kick against the goads? Why do you keep going, Paul? What reason do you have to faithfully minister? Paul answers 1 Timothy for uh, the rest of verse ten. I'll read the whole. Uh, I'll read the entire verse. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Paul here gives two, one reason, but two, you know, one or two reasons. Uh, he says basically the, the, the reason why he continues to do this. Uh, what some people might say is insanity, uh, continuing to do the same thing, not getting human results sometimes, uh, living a harsh life, being reproached. The reason why he continues to do this is because he trusts in the living God who saves all men. That phrase, living God, has uh, a special usage in Scripture. Um, i did a word study of this it's not a you know it's not a peer-reviewed paper i just searched on it on 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 my bible app okay in the new king james version that phrase living god is used in scripture 30 times the majority of times that it's used more than 20 times When that phrase appears, it is used to affirm God's great power and authority. When that word is used in scripture, it's used to affirm God's great power and authority. For example, uh, in Deuteronomy 5, when Moses finishes giving um, Israel the Ten Commandments, this is what... So Moses re- is recounting what the Israelites said to him at Mount Sinai, okay? And so Moses is recounting to the Israelites what they said. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore. Then we shall die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? And so then the Israelites told Moses, you go we're afraid of the living god you go and speak to god for us okay so when that phrase is used it's used most of the time to affirm god's great power and authority Uh, another place where this phrase is used hebrews chapter 10 uh, where it talks about god's judgment final judgment Chapter 10, verse 30 and 31. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So when we labor and toil in ministry, and it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And when we are reproached, we are rejected by men why should we continue to faithfully minister why continue it's because we are servants of the living god we are servants of the powerful god the god who has all authority meaning he's in charge and we're not meaning also he has the power to convert people And we do not. Why do we keep doing his methods? Why do we keep preaching his word, the whole counsel of it? Why do we keep doing it even when we're rejected? It's because he has the power to save people. In fact, he has the only power to save. Not us. Not our methods. Remember the words of Paul when he wrote to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3. Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So that neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. See, it's not even a matter of God is uh, more powerful than we are, and so it's a good idea to to use God's word, to use God's methods, and to be faithful to that because it'll have increased um, results. Okay? It's not that. It's that God is the only one able to save people. God is the only one able to draw sinners to himself, to salvation. So we must use his method, methods. We must use his ways. We have to be faithful to that. Otherwise, if we use our ways, if we use our methods, uh, we're not drawing people to God, we're actually only drawing people to ourselves. I think that's an ugly truth that nobody wants to talk about. When we see churches and ministers stray away from God's Word, um, they they might make it sound very spiritual, they might make themselves sound very righteous, but basically in the end they, are in, they do it for themselves. They do it so that they can draw men towards themselves for book sales and social media followers and a uh, number of congregants in their church. They do it to expand their own platform. That's the ugly truth of the hearts of those who stray away from God's word that nobody wants to talk about. what can we take away um if we trust that god is the living god who saves all men and just a brief comment there the savior of all men uh, when it says all men uh, it's not meaning every single individual person on earth okay because at the end of that verse it also says especially of those who believe So there, the the, the Bible isn't saying everyone will be saved. Uh, That phrase, the Savior of all men, means men of every kind, of every nation, of every language. God doesn't discriminate. It also means men of... How should I put this? It also says there is no man who is too sinful for God to, to save. Okay, no, no, no man who is so stuck in his sin, who is so destitute that God can't save him. Okay, that's what that word means. Um, but the fact that we trust in the living God who saves all men, uh, that fact should propel us to do two things that should cause us to be bold. And it should cause us to to trust that if God doesn't open a door somewhere that he will open other doors elsewhere. So it trusts us to be bold and it also trusts us to be hopeful in him. Uh, The the, the reason why we brought up the David passage when David uh, fought Goliath, David affirms God's great power and authority, right? Twice, he says to the army. Who is this Philistine that is defying the armies of the living God? Okay, so David trusts that not only Israel, but he can win against this wizened army battle veteran. He's a boy. You know, that every time I read that, the, the thing that he says to Paul, but I've killed bears and lions. I can go up. You know, that's it's a little humorous. Like I imagine if if a young person, or if my son came up to me, I, I can do this, Dad, because I've done this.
1: You know, it, it's a little humorous.
0: Um, but 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 David is, he believes that this is the army of the living God, and nobody can 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 come between that. And that gives him boldness. And you can tell other people see his boldness because his own brother says. Look, you little rascal, be quiet. I know you're arrogant. I know you're insolent. Okay, so other people mistake his boldness for arrogance. But David is bold, right? He goes and fights Goliath. Uh, The reason why we read this passage of Paul before the Pharisees and Sadducees in Acts 23, Paul is bold. You know, think, put yourself in Paul's shoes. Let's say you were in front of a council, a General Assembly, and the General Assembly was debating this controversial topic where 50% said, um, no, we should not let homosexuals be elders or officers in church. And 50% said, yes, we should let homosexuals be elf- officers and you know, elders and deacons in church. And imagine you get up and you make a speech. Um, what would you say? Paul gets up in between these two parties that disagree on the resurrection. And you notice he doesn't try to win any side over. He doesn't try to win the Pharisees over. He doesn't try to win the Sadducees over. He doesn't try to be winsome. Okay, That's a word that's thrown around a lot in our church circles nowadays. You want to win people, but you want to be winsome. You want to give God's truth, but you want to be winsome. You want to you know, win people over. Um, You don't see Paul doing that at all in Acts 23. Basically, he just cuts to the chase, and he lays it out there, right? he basically testifies. There is a resurrection. I believe it, and I'm being persecuted because of the resurrection. You know, to give a similar uh, parallel, let's say you're at that general assembly and half believe homosexuals should be in church and half believe homosexuals should not, and you get up and this is your speech. Homosexual is a sin. (laughs) And God will judge us if we allow them to be officers in the church. The end. Period. You know, what actually happened in the uh, PCA General Assembly, this was maybe 10 years ago, was a pastor did get up, and he did speak against homosexuals in the church, but he did it in a very gentle, in a very pastoral way. And the General Assembly still brought charges of, um, uh, what, what's that word? Uh, intolerant language against that pastor. If they brought that charge against that pastor, imagine what they would have brought against Paul. Intemperate. okay, Intemperate language. Well, Paul's intemperate throughout all of Acts. So throw that out. Notice what Jesus says to Paul. Not men, but Jesus. Acts 23, 11. That night, Jesus appears to Paul and he says, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Here, Jesus tells Paul two things. In Jesus' eyes, Paul is not intemperate. He's a good servant. You know, don't worry about what other people are saying. You are a good servant. Be of good cheer, Paul. And I'm going to open this door for you. You're going to go to Rome. And in the same way you testify for me here, you're going to testify for me in Rome. Now, I bet... I don't have any proof of this you know one day maybe we can ask paul i bet in paul's wildest dreams and plans and preparations for all these missionary journeys he could not fathom finding a way on his own to go to rome to, to to testify to the gospel in front of the caesar okay i'm sure he wanted to but in all his concoctions and all his planning i don't think he could have thought of a way to get himself to rome but jesus did jesus opened that door when we believe that we serve the living god who is the savior of all men it makes us bold it makes us say okay we're going to be faithful we're going to preach the whole counsel of god other people's opinions doesn't don't matter. We can be bold, and we're, we can trust that God can open a door. If people reject us here, God will open a door somewhere. Because he's the savior of all men, there are still plenty of men, mankind, out there who need his word, his gospel. um, Friends, last time I spoke about perspective, how the New Year gives us perspective. This This is basically a call for us to mind our perspective. When we view things through the eyes of men, you know, a small church, a small house church is not very successful. A small house church that is quote unquote stubborn in continuing to preach these controversial parts of God's word, and not backing down, not making it more winsome, not making it more palatable for for those around us, Uh, that's insanity. That's not going, you know, that's going to be a failure in people's eyes. But it's a matter of perspective, because we don't serve men. We serve Christ. We serve the living God. May God give us grace. May God give us um, the ability to follow through and to remain faithful in this ministry. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, this interlude, this passage, um, which doesn't appear all that difficult on the surface. Certainly, it's not difficult to comprehend what you are trying to say. Uh, but when we dig deeper and, and when we really see uh, what you are referring to, the type of ministry that you are referring to, the things in your word that you are commanding us to, to preach and teach and be faithful to, and the type of ministry you are calling us to, to toil and to suffer reproach, uh, Lord, this is a daunting, daunting task, a, a very discouraging task, perhaps. But Lord, help us in our perspective. Help us to fix our eyes on you, as Paul did. Help us to have the boldness and help us to have the hope in you that although we may be rejected in certain places, that you will continue to open doors for us in other places. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.